And I'm going to continue the reading that I started just a little while ago from 1 Samuel chapter 12. So uh, turn in your own Bibles to 1 Samuel 12 or in the bulletins or in those blue Bibles in front of you to page 234. As I begin, I'm going to begin with verse 13. And I just want to introduce this quickly to you by saying this. The words that I'm going to begin with are, and now behold the king. I want you to see the trajectory of that statement. There will come in later years the prophetic expectation of a coming king. In fact, it will be prophesied saying, behold your king coming to you riding on a colt. And so in a thousand years from the time that this is written, that passage, behold your king, will be referenced as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem riding on this colt. And in just a few short days following that triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Pilate will take a beaten and a bloody and a purple-robed, thorn-crowned Jesus, and he will bring him before the people, and he will say, Behold the man, behold your king. That's the trajectory of the passage that is before us today. That's where it leads. There will come another time, at a time we do not know, when we will behold that king again. And he will not be bloodied, and he will not be crowned with thorns, but he will have the crown of empires on his brow, and he will come in glory. Hear this portion of the word of God from 13 to the end of the chapter. And now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandments of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask ourselves for a king. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet... Do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord 
and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Keep the covenant. Lord, we pray that you would help us as those who by grace have been made to be participants of the covenant of grace sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ offered on our behalf. We pray that you would help us to hear and to heed the words, the words of encouragement, the words of refreshment, even the words of warning that are set before us in this text today. Lord, open us up and speak to us through your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Much of our lives are led and lived in between major events. And accordingly, most of our lives are regular. They're routine. One day follows another day. We do things that are very similar. And that is good. And it is, in fact, as it should be. Of every day, we can make the statement, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in the day that he has made. Most days are routine, but not all days. All days are not the same. There are days when a baby is born, and then there are birthdays that follow after the days of a birth. There are days when people who are near and dear and beloved to us die. And then there are the funerals that follow after those days. There are graduations which will be upcoming. There are celebrations to be had. There are holidays and there are weddings. There are special days in life. And we should be a people who, while appreciating the routine, the regular, should also recognize and appreciate the fact that not every day is like every other day. And today's text is not just another day in Israel's history. It is a day of significant change in the life of God's people. It is, and none of this will be perfect, a day of coronation. It is an inauguration day for Saul and for kingship to be expressed and to be lived out in the life of God's people. In particular, and this is what will follow today, it is a day of covenant renewal, it is a day of resolution, and it is a day of recommitment. I think we can understand the passage before us in each one of those categories. We begin them with the incredible hope that is found in the biblical portrayal of covenant renewal. The covenant is God's sacred bond that he has made with his people as our sovereign. And in that sacred bond that God has entered into us, into with us, he allows us to be part of his family. Now, initially, when God entered into covenant with Adam, that was a covenant of works, as we confessed earlier in our affirmation. But after Adam had broken that covenant of works, God entered into a covenant of grace 
to redeem his people out of the sin of this world and to care for his people in the midst of all of the difficulties of this world and then to bring us to glory as a redeemed people out of a fallen world. It is this covenant of grace that we see renewed and unpacked, unfolded and expressed and celebrated in the pages of scripture at critical moments in the life of God's people, when there are significant times of change, when there are significant events that have taken place and junctures in history, such as this passage today, we see this covenant of grace unpacked once again for us. So whether we think of Adam or Noah or Moses or Joshua, we see that this covenant of grace is unfolded for us, it's unpacked for us in the face of great sin oftentimes having been committed and then a great act of deliverance on the part of God himself. Think, for example, of the unpacking of the covenant of grace in view of the very first sin of humanity. Or think of how it is unpacked and expressed in after the flood in the deliverance that has taken place that reflects on the sin of humanity and on the grace of God in the deliverance that is expressed there. Or think of how this covenant of grace is expressed after the sin of the golden calf. It's at these critical moments that people turn back to, that the Lord turns his people back to, the covenant of grace. And that is what makes it so hopeful. It's what makes it so hopeful for them. It's what makes it so hopeful for us when it seems like all is lost. When it seems like you've now made a request, give us a king, that there's no going back from that request. That that should be the thing that is the tipping point whereby God will wipe you out after having made that request. When it seems to us that all hope is lost, that we have forfeited our blessings, that we have forfeited our inheritance, that we have forfeited our privilege and our position as the people of God, as the children of God. When we have sinned and we find it impossible to forgive ourselves and unimaginable that God himself could actually forgive us, then that is when we are reminded, are reminded once again of this covenant of grace. God steps in and he declares to us in the midst of our sin, for a moment using words from Psalm 103, I am not treating you as your sins deserve. I'm not treating you that way. I'm not dealing with you as your sins deserve. Instead, I am dealing with you on the basis of the covenant of grace that I have established with you. And that is what is said here in this passage. I have consigned myself by oath and by covenant to do good to you. Verse 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people. Why? For his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. 
I'm not dealing with you on the basis of your sin. I'm dealing with you on the basis of the covenant that I have made. It pleased him. It pleased God to make you a people for himself. And he won't forsake you, not because you're the holy, perfect person, but instead he won't forsake you for his great name's sake. Israel has committed treason. That's what's taking place here in this request for a king. They, being in covenant with Yahweh as king, said, no, we no longer want to have Yahweh as king. We want to have a person as king. We want to have a man as king. God, the sovereign king, with whom they were in covenant, would have been perfectly just to, at that moment, have enacted what is warned in verse 25. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. God would have been perfectly just as soon as they made that request to say, that's treason. That is the reason that I am now going to cut you off, that I am now going to destroy you as a people. But instead, what does he do? He turns it into an opportunity here for covenant renewal, an opportunity for them, for us, to see our sin and yet to once again experience the grace of God. I do not know the status of your covenantal commitments right now. Your covenantal commitments to God, to your family, to your spiritual walk, to the church. But let's say for a moment that they're in a shambles right now. Let's say that your spiritual life is in tatters right now. That you can't imagine recovery from your spiritual life. Then you need to see in this passage and you need to hear in this passage that there's always hope of covenant renewal. Now, this is a day then for Israel of covenant renewal. That's what's taking place here. All of this form here, all of this structure is the form of a covenant renewal ceremony. But it is also a day of resolution for Israel. We have seen as we've walked our way through these chapters now for the last couple of chapters, this unresolved tension that is existing in this story. On the one hand, Israel, and this is made clear once again, of course, in this text, has sinfully requested a king. This is a rejection of God. It is a rejection of God as, a, as their suzerain king, the sovereign one who had made the covenant with them. They are sinfully requesting a king, demanding a king, and rejecting God as being king. They're rejecting the way that God has cared for them over the years. God has taken care of his people. And so Samuel recites how God has provided for the people faithfully. He's done it throughout history. He's done it through men like Moses and Aaron and Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel himself. And his rejection is a great evil. It is a great wickedness, is what Samuel calls it. At verse 17, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great 
which you have done in the sight of the Lord and asking for yourselves a king. It is worthy of judgment. And so Samuel says, just so you know how worthy of judgment it is, it's the wheat harvest right now. It can't rain during the wheat harvest. And I'm going to send thunder and rain. I'm going to pray for that. And the Lord will send it right now so that you will know how great your wickedness is and how close to judgment you are. And that actually takes place. The wickedness is great. And on the other hand of this tension is, of course, this idea that God has given them this anointed king who is right there before them, and God has given this anointed king a great initial and first victory for the people. And there you've got this tension. I've been trying to think of a way to appreciate this tension for us in a modern-day uh, scenario, and, and I've come up with one that is, that is not great. But consider this. Imagine yourself to be a parent, and you are a parent of a teenager, a teenager who is approaching the age when the teenager will be able to drive, and you've got this great plan as a parent. The plan that you've got as, the, as a parent is that at the time when they're able to drive, or at the time at least when you think it's right for them, when they're mature enough, responsible enough, you are going to surprise them one day. This is a fantasy, by the way, kids, sorry. <laughs> you are going to surprise them one day, and you're going to give them a car. Okay? And it's going to be a great car. It's going to be a perfect car, perfect time, and you're all set up to give them a car. You can't wait for this day, because you've got a terrific gift that you want to give to them. But before that day arrives, your teenager comes up to you and says, I want a car. I demand that you give me a car. All of my friends have cars. They all have their own cars. They all own their own cars. They all have independence. They can all get around on their own. I don't only want a car. I want an M2. Now, some of you, some of you laugh. That's good. That means that you have some idea of what an M2 is. So M2 is a BMW and it would be a really fun car, all right? It would be a really great car to drive, and it would be, and I picked an M2 because it would, A, be a fun car, but B, I, I, I'm pretty sure none of you has one um, right now. I would certainly know um, if, uh, if anybody had one. I want an M2. I demand that you give me an M2, and here you are as a parent. You have this great plan. You are going to surprise with a car, you were going to give independence. You were going to delight in giving this gift to your child. But now, you're stuck. What do you do? What do you do? And so what God does is says, all right, I'm going to give you an M2, whether or not you're able to handle it. And what that M2 is going to do, you know this as a parent, is it's going to take, take, take. Every time you go to repair it, whoo, that's going to take a lot of money to repair that M2. And it might just take your life. It might just end up being wrapped around a tree after some short while, like one chapter after this one. One chapter after this one, the M2 will be wrapped around the tree. It'll be in the shop. A serious wreck will have occurred. Give me the inheritance now. To a little parallel it with some other 
biblical stories, I think gives us a sense of what's going on at this time. Somehow this incongruity must be resolved. This rift must be reconciled and this wound has to be healed. And the resolution comes in this passage. As hard as this passage is on the request for a king, it's actually bringing to us resolution and bringing to Israel and to God resolution of this. The, the, the resolution takes place on two levels. It takes place on the structural level and it takes place on the heart level as well. On the structural level, the question moving forward is, oh, okay, how do we act now? For years, life in Israel, as it related to anything that was all Israel or what we should do as a nation or as a tribe, it was centered around Samuel. Well, what's now the relationship between Samuel, whom God has installed into his position, and Saul? Samuel has been functioning for years now as judge and prophet and also in ways as priest. That's how he's been in Israel. And this chapter makes a clear delineation in those roles. And so Samuel leads it off. Samuel recognizes, being inspired by the Lord, that some changes are now about to be taking place. And he establishes his credibility, his integrity, by asking a series of questions. Have I defrauded anyone? Have I taken anything from anyone? Have I done, in other words, anything wrong as a judge? Are you rejecting my judgeship, my position, because of some failure on my part? So he's establishing a very official scene, and he's calling the Lord as witness and the anointed of the Lord as witness, okay? So both of them, Saul is standing there. Saul's not even mentioned by name in this chapter. But the Lord and the anointed are witness to the testimony that is now going to be borne by the people when they say, no. There's nothing that you've taken from us. There's no way that you've defrauded us. There's no way that you've been insufficient, delinquent in the duties that you have had before us. You have been faithful in all that God has given you to do. God has been faithful and you have been faithful. And with that clearly stated, just so what we're stating here is there's no failure on God's part, there's no failure on Samuel's part, and with that clearly stated, Samuel, on behalf of all those who have preceded him, steps aside as judge. And metaphorically, what he does, maybe, maybe there was some way that this was physically done as well, but metaphorically, what he does is he gives the gavel and he gives the scepter to Saul. And he steps aside from that role, gives them to the anointed king while retaining for himself, and this is important for us to realize, he retains for himself the prophetic and the priestly role. Those do not go to Saul. They are retained at this point by Samuel. Roles that in the past and in a few short years themselves will be distinguished. Parentheses here for a moment. I've tried to show this throughout. 
what God is doing is making clear what these offices are, what they do, how they must be fulfilled by a person, and by separating them, we're able to see each one, and all of that is just helping us to see who Jesus is, what Jesus has done on our behalf. But for now, the people see what is taking place here, and they're afraid quickly of abandonment. And they say, no, 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 Samuel, please intercede on our behalf especially after the thunder and the uh, lightning comes on the wheat harvest. They say, please, please, don't leave us. Intercede on our behalf. Now, that is a request for Samuel to maintain his role as an intercessor before the Lord. It's a priestly request. And Samuel's response to it reveals the division. He says, I will not sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. In other words, I will continue to function in this role as priest, interceding on your behalf. And in addition to that, I will instruct you in the good and right way. That's the prophetic role. And that's exactly what he's doing in this chapter um, as well. So what he's saying is, I will continue to do those things. I'll intercede and I will continue to instruct you in the good way. But Samuel recognizes that while he's doing that, he has taken a step into the background and he's allowing the anointed now to show here. And I've tried to point out for us along the way here the similarities that exist between Samuel and John the Baptist. And the verse on the front of your bulletin gets off, gets at this as well. Essentially what Samuel is doing is saying, I must decrease and he must increase. Okay, John the Baptist is the prophet who has been anointing people, who has been baptizing people, and now he steps back as soon as Jesus comes and says, wait, 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 I'm off. I'm backstage right now. This is the one. He must increase, and that's what's taking place here in this chapter. David Firth makes this helpful summary. Each side of this structure needs to understand the other's position. The prophet does not control the civil realm, nor the king the sacral. Each has a specific role that has to complement and balance the other. In effect, this speech becomes the point where Samuel cedes his civil authority as judge, but the king must cede any sacral authority. That is, the king can't take those positions away from Samuel as God has set this up. And of course, that's going to be the problem. If you're familiar with the story, that's going to be the problem in the next chapter, and then after that as well. Is Saul is not going to heed the boundaries, the divisions that have been established here and established by God. The M2 will crash. Of course, there's one other structural element that must be fundamentally clear, and that is this, whether you are the people or the king or the priest or the prophet, all must recognize that we are in the same position that we serve under Yahweh. Even this king, you wanted a king, you have to see, if we're going to make this right, you have to see that that king serves under me. That king serves under the Lord. In other words, to put this in, in the words of verse 14, it will be well. It, there's a tension that's come up here. An incredible sin has taken place. God has responded in a certain way. 
but God has a way to make all things well. We talked about this a few weeks ago. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good, to accomplish his purposes. So God has a way to make it well, which brings us to our final point. If this is a day of covenant renewal, God extending his grace and mercy to sinful Israel, if it is a day of resolution, when these tensions are resolved and the roles are delineated, then it's also a day of recommitment. In the covenant of grace, God works unilaterally, pouring out his love and his compassion, his grace and his mercy unto sinful people. But a covenant always calls for a response. And while that response is enabled by the Lord of the covenant, it is in fact enacted by us. So there's a call that is here in this passage. Samuel has been faithful, the Lord has been faithful, and Israel, we have not been faithful. And so the call goes out to Israel, be the faithful people of God. Do not be the faithful people of God only when we're standing here at Gilgal and we're having this big ceremony as we've had at other places and at other points in time. Do not be the faithful people of God only at the rally points. Be the faithful people of God every day, all the time. And you heard the call as I read it before, but I'm going to read these verses again for emphasis. Verse 14, here's the call. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and those are summary, fear, serve, obey, and if you will follow after the Lord, it will be well with you. Verses 20 and 21. Do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. There's a lot of emptiness in the world into which we pour our time, into which we pour our hearts, into which we pour our trust, our hope. What are you engaged in in your life that is in reality empty, a black hole that will suck the light out of your life. Bend it. And verse 24, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things the Lord has done for you. That's always the covenantal call. It doesn't matter whether that's being spoken in the covenant of grace to Abraham or to Moses or to Joshua or through them to us, the people of God. The call is almost exactly the same. The words are almost exactly the same. They always sound just like that or very close to those words. Structural change, transition, and resolution is at hand. Organizational change is afoot, and that is good, and it is important. But the Lord says this to every human being, prophet, priest, kings, and the rest of us. I want your heart. 
I don't want anything less. I want your heart. I want you to obey. I want you to serve. And I want you to fear. And I want you to do it with all of your heart. I want your fidelity. In other times of covenant renewal, perhaps you can remember back to uh, Joshua, for example, or to uh, Sinai. When the people hear this, they cry out and they, they utterly pledge themselves unto it. Yes, yes, we will do it. Now, we don't have that here in this particular text. At least we don't have it recorded. Personally, I suspect it was said. Yes, we agree. We will follow after the Lord, but regardless. What is recorded is a confession. Verse 19, and all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. There's no pledge here to obey henceforth and forevermore. But there is confession. There is repentance. And if there's ever a place for renewal, for refreshment, for a restart in our lives in the covenant of grace, it is in exact, exactly that same spot. It is to make for ourselves a statement equivalent to that one and to say, Lord, God of grace, God of the covenant, have mercy on me and lead me in the way everlasting. Come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. That's what we, they said. Now, we think of that and we hear, renew the kingdom, install Saul. But it's not just that that's taking place. To renew the kingdom for Israel was to install Saul as king, but to renew the kingship of God. That was the kingship that they had rejected. What needs to be renewed is the kingship of God Almighty. The kingship of God Almighty, yes, the kingship of Saul, under the kingship of God Almighty. David's birth again, speaking of Israel in later years and then to all of us. They knew the sense of pain and loss their sin had brought, and even though Yahweh had chosen to work with kingship, it was not finally kings who saved. Only Yahweh could do that. But this chapter is not finally condemnation. It is gospel good news because it affirms God's commitment to renew those who turn to him recognizing their sin and who seek to serve him faithfully. What Samuel affirms is that the God of the Bible is a God of beginnings, a God who saves and delights to summon his people to come once more and join with him. There is thus always hope in repentance and faith, a God who calls to us once more. My friends, the time is always right for renewal. This is the day that the Lord has made, and every day is the day that the Lord has made. But if you need a prompt, 
If you want a special reason, a special thing to attach a renewal to, I tricked you. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You know where it's from? It's from Psalm 118. It's the two verses that precede the calling of blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the Lord in the highest. In particular, the day that the Lord has made is in this case the day that the king comes into his place. The day that the king arrives into his city. And so if you need a reason, if you want to hang something on to renewal of your faith before the Lord, well, here it is. The king rode into Jerusalem on a beast of burden so that he could bear yours. So that he could take yours. That's why he came into Jerusalem on this day. Knowing what awaited him. Behold your king. Blessed is his coming kingdom. May we each hail the king, follow the king, by his grace, keep the covenant. Lord God, only by your grace, only by your grace, grab us by the scruff of the neck, Wherever we are right now, Lord, however much we have wandered and strayed from you in whatever the commitments may be, in whatever the sin that has grabbed hold of us, Lord, your grip is stronger. Your grace is greater than all my sin. Grab me and yank me back in to walk with you in the newness of life. Lord, if there are people here today who don't know you, this is the day that you've made. May they hail the King. In your name, amen.